0: Amazing
1: what you can learn from a cyberbot. Pay the prize, or pay the price. Big locked door. I love a big locked
2: door. Ominous. Never even heard of Moomin beings.
0: I'm gonna look out for you, son. I'm not a kid. To you, man. I'm this. Where's the reload? Where's
2: reload? Where's the reload? Where's the reload? Where's <laughs> That's That's all the
0: reload? Where's the reload? Where's the reload? Where's the reload? Where's the reload? Where's the
2: Who cares? Episode 2. The Ghost Monument.
0: So, should we talk about what we liked about the episode? About my beautiful ghost monument. That's an interesting line, isn't it? Like, what was Chibnall going for with that one? My beautiful ghost monument. It's amazing what you can learn from a title or a sniper bot. Yeah, that, that was interesting, actually. I mean, a line like that, that kind of is reminiscent of what's going on with the lines in the whole episode, which is that everything is narrated. Every last detail. Did you, did you guys find that? It was an audio script, 100%. In fact, I think there were parts of it that
1: actually would have made more sense if there weren't visuals. Like the door, which was miraculously off-screen the entire
0: time. That was incredible. Like They have the budget for this massive, really good-looking tunnel, but she comes up to the edge of it and points her, her sonic at the edge of the screen. Big locked door, ominous.
2: I'm thinking this is how Chibnall mollified Briggs, given that he didn't bring the Daleks back this year. He brought him on as a script consultant. Oh
0: my God. Yeah, I think, I mean, something I was thinking about in the thread was that is Chibnall doing this audio-like writing on purpose? Like, is there a kind of audience demographic here who doesn't pay attention to the screen and who Chibnall's trying to appease with this? I'm
2: thinking maybe. I think it would be a pretty canny way to really capture... This sounds so condescending. The Netflix audience, the Cape Shit audience. Like, I know watching these type of shows people, including me, you know, tend to look at your phone or tab out because they're not that engaging, but there's something you have on. So if Chibnall's aware of that, if he's conscious of that and he's making the characters narrate like they're in an audio, so people while they're doing the laundry or fucking around on their phones can still understand what little is going on, that's kind of inspired in a really weird way.
0: As a genuine stylistic choice, right, it does seem to make sense. And it might not even be something that's worth getting mad about at this point if he's doing it deliberately.
2: But why not show the door though? Like that doesn't make any
1: sense to me. Yeah, that's the question I can't get my head around. That and the the water also. Did you notice any effect in the water? There was that strange scene where they focused in on it and said that it was full of microbes. And to me, it just looked like ordinary water.
0: That was kind of, that was kind of a, a classic Qish take where you have to imagine that anything is being done here. Like it's just water, but if we tell you it's full of flesh-eating microbes, and you can kind of pretend that it's dangerous.
2: Destillation was weird in how many Chekhov's guns, like the water, was set up that never went anywhere. Like the villain literally was rags this episode, nothing else. Threatened anyone really besides the sniper bots quickly. dispatched.
0: If we're talking about things that weren't followed up on, do you remember in the first few minutes there's talk about bonuses and how Epso and Angstrom collect the characters as like bonuses? And that seems like it's going to come to something later. Like maybe they're going to be, the, the character's going to be sold off as a way for them to get an advantage in the race. But it just goes nowhere. Like Art Malik turns up and says, no bonuses. So what was the point? We never even find out what it meant.
2: Speaking of Epso and Angstrom, so where do we all fall in the end? Team Angstrom. Angstrom till I die. Angstrom. I hate to say it because I feel like it's a betrayal of what I stand for but Anstrom was so much more charismatic and interesting in the episode. An episode didn't lean into his schlock enough that, yeah, I'd have to go with Anstrom as well.
0: That's a really good point about the episode not leaning into the schlock. You know his comically edgy backstory where his mother abused him in order to teach him the lesson that you cannot trust anyone? I thought they played that so seriously, but it was so funny how ridiculous it was. So it was another case of kind of tonal misfiring, like in episode one.
1: But I think we're ignoring the big question here, which is who are Angstrom and Epso?
0: Yeah, arguably we did not truly find that out.
1: I was really hoping that there would be something other than these one note characters who say their backstories, do their lines. I liked the setting, but they on Angstrom are so intimidating that they could threaten the tent guy. I forget his name. uh, They could threaten him with, you know, oh, you better make this a tie or else and yet they seem completely incompetent for the rest of the episode.
2: The first five minutes established their entire narrative reason to be, and their exposition has no bearing on anything that occurs later. So the marketing line about just who are they makes absolutely no sense.
0: But it was particularly weird how in their first encounter with uh, Art Malik's character, I think his name was Ilin, In their first encounter with that, he's quite intimidating to them. He kind of menaces Angstrom, says, I'm not changing anything. This is how I'm doing it. And then in their last encounter with him, that it's completely reversed. And we don't know why they've suddenly gained the courage to stand up to this guy and threaten him with death. And we also don't understand why Art Malik's character gives in so easily after being so standoffish earlier. Like, what the hell happened?
2: Well, perhaps in much the way Moffat used to leave huge gaps in Eleven's life for Big Finish to fill in, he's doing Big Finish a favour here with the eventual Epso and Angstrom box sets, and leaving so much for them to fill in.
0: That's a good point. I mean, everything in this episode is essentially part of the Big Finish canon already. So Big Finish just kind of slotting in into a position that's already been filled out for them. What do you guys think about Thirteen so far in this episode, as of episode two?
2: oddly imperious in the gun scene like that was very tenant very tenant 2.0
0: she does have a quite a kind of imperious vibe for this whole episode in the first scene with epso she's like your epso's like you think you can do this better and she's like yes i can and she just sort of overrules him and she's very They make a point in this episode about how great she is and how much we should just trust her with everything. And the gun scene again was another blatant example of this. I thought she was behaving particularly tenantish in that one. Do you
2: remember when Chibnall and Strevens, before the premiere came out, were selling one of the greatest features of the series, how
0: non-hierarchical it was? That was incredible. It's so hierarchical now. That's just completely gone out the window. I mean, it's not even so much hierarchy at this point, as it's just the Doctor is there and everyone else is sort of not. Like, certainly the companions, they're not a part, a hierarchy suggests that there's a relationship of power. In the case of Thirteen and her companions, it's it's barely even a relationship, really, isn't it?
1: I was really hoping that we would see something interesting from Thirteen in the, there was one particular moment where I think Graham was going up the ladder and they were going to where there's the gas and they were afraid they wouldn't survive. And she was looking at him so thoughtfully and I hoped that she was, like, trying to, I don't know, test it using him as the test subject. I don't know. I thought there would be something more to her thought process, but it seems
0: like she just says everything out loud. I don't know, it's taking me a while to settle into her portrayal of the Doctor. I wouldn't have expected any sort of master plan stuff from 13. I thought that moment where Ryan's f- afraid to go up the ladder and 13 gives him some advice on, you know, think about acetylene and stuff like that, that seems like an encapsulation of what they're trying to do with 13. And I like that well enough, even if it is basic, but it's so it's such a contrast from, you know, like the gun scene, for example, where she's just saying, oh, you idiot, don't pick up a gun. So again, it's, it's incoherency that's bothering me.
2: Speaking of Ryan climbing the ladder, Do you remember last podcast when we speculated if his dyspraxia would just become a little uh, character point for the brownie points and not have any real bearing on the narrative and he could do anything else aesthetically needed by the stories? Why is he only struggling with ladders? Is that like his sole dyspraxic issue?
1: Yeah, I know people with dyspraxia and I believe that they can be good at video games, right? So, I mean, that's plausible, but um, you know, the running, that was fine. Oh,
2: I'd have to happily completely concede the issue there, then. I suppose it was as much my bewilderment that two episodes in a row presented Ladders as his unique obstacle, Ben. But more to the point, what did you think of the gun scene itself, then, Nate?
1: I didn't like the gun scene. I know that Thirteen had so many emotions about it, especially when she just solved the situation with the bomb that was at her feet the entire time.
0: The gun scene itself, like the moment that you know uh, Ryan picks up the gun and starts running around blasting everything. What, how did you guys feel about that?
1: I loved
2: it. Hilarious. most have enjoyed the show since the series 10 finale.
0: I thought that was exquisite, but it also feels like it's from a completely different script and a completely different show, which might be why it's so enjoyable. It felt
2: like it was from a self-aware show that knew it was being funny and a bit of schlock.
0: Tossin's performance in that scene perfectly encapsulated what you just said there, Neo. By the end, he's just screaming. He's like, whoa! Like he doesn't care about trying to take this character seriously anymore, and that's perfect. The
2: point of view shots as well from the director's choice. It was all a bit of visual Fun. It was a lark. It was funny. It wasn't so self-serious and dour.
0: I love those POV shots. Like I, I know some people complained about them, but you know, if you're if you're doing a sequence like this, you might as well have fun with it, right?
1: Yeah, gamers have to rise up. Indeed. I thought the direction on this was all around
0: so much better than on episode one. What, what were you guys talking oh, Absolutely, yeah. Like It just benefited so much from the opening scene as instantly. We had these nice long takes going around the inside of Epso's spaceship. Those were good. There were a lot of
2: interesting shots where it kind of went really close up on a character's face while they were talking. Uh, kind of reminded me of the 50th, which used that for like the first half. It was kind of an effect.
0: There was lots of close-ups on eyes near the start, weren't there? And just, um, I liked, as Ryan wakes up right at the start, there's kind of a montage of sort of abstract images and it's kind of hallucinatory. That was a nice touch. You know, it was nice to see some flair still exist in this era.
2: Yeah, I've no real complaints on the direction front. The tone, apart from the Ryan scene, which subverted it in a cool way, the tone was pretty consistent. Uh, everything looked pretty uniform. Yeah, I thought the direction was good.
0: Nick? Oh, I
1: think the close-ups, at one point, I actually thought if they'd finished designing the set, or if they just needed to do the close-ups on specific objects. It really helped with the nice atmospheric feel of the rooms and the tunnels in particular.
0: You might be onto something with that thing about them not having finished designing the set if the scene with the big locked door is any evidence. This is
2: the trouble when you're doing an audio script style story, is that you can't, you kind of take sets for granted, and then when you realise you don't have them, you have to push up really close
0: into a character space. One thing I noticed um, visually, but also structurally, partly in the script as well, is there are two virtually identical scenes of Graham waking Ryan up done in the same way. I thought that was really weird and redundant. So we get one at the start when he's waking up in the spaceship, and then another one when I think they're on the boat, and it's just like, why are we doing this again?
2: I saw a comment, I think, in the threads to this effect, but it was, if this was in Classic Who and it was a serial, the boat would have sprung a leak at the end of the episode and we'd have to do a whole, show and dance about how they got the boat going again and I thought that was pretty funny and on point.
0: A scene where the boat sprung a leak would have been quite interesting given the water was full of flesh-eating microbes but of course we cannot see any scene where the flesh-eating microbes become relevant.
2: Speaking of getting eaten by flesh-eating microbes, what was your reaction to when Thirteen's really uh, schmaltzy, emotional commercial theme started playing while she was lambasting ryan about the guns
0: i mean it's like it's like sensory overload at this point like i barely even registered that that was happening because everything is so all all over the place it was just another note being struck in this fast cacophony
2: it actually felt very doctor who to me in that it reminded me of all the times in series five six and seven when i'm the doctor would start playing at kind of inappropriate tonal times
0: exactly I, mean, I, don't know, I feel like it was never quite this inappropriate in matt smith's era that seems a bit unkind
2: perhaps it was just overused. well it was definitely overused in matt's era but at least it had quite a few variations whereas we had two little variations in this episode but they're not that varied so i worry that her theme's gonna grate really fast especially coming off 12s which never graded because it was so dynamic and long and shifted a lot this one is like 20 seconds of a loop that is the same.
0: Um, what did you guys think of like the designated character moments in this episode? So, like Ryan and Graham's brief conversation about you know, what would Grace say if she was here? Stuff like that. It
1: was kind of shoehorned in. I've noticed that they've... It, if it's
0: not obvious yet,
1: I didn't like this episode very much. And I know that doesn't agree with Neo, at least.
2: Well, I gesture at the distinction between liking more than the premiere and plain liking. But anyway, yeah, what did you think of the what would Grace say moment?
1: Yeah, it was shoehorned in. It was placed really strangely between two scenes of them doing the same thing. And I feel like there wasn't any transition. So it was just abrupt. I almost got emotional whiplash going from their kind of intense character moment to 13 just blustering in and saying, oh, good job, you're making progress.
2: I think it was Andrew Ellard on Twitter that said, Ryan in that scene, or those scenes you're talking about, could have been written as an eight-year-old and nothing would have changed. Like with how sulky he was and the specific problems he was having with Graham, like none of this was relating to him as an adult or a mature emotional being.
0: He literally says, I'm not a kid at one point. That was ridiculous. And I think this issue of him being written at the wrong age plays into the Call of Duty moment as well. The the, the dyspraxia and the video games and the YouTube. Like that's how how a boomer would write a 12-year-old and not how a 19-year-old would actually behave. Speaking
2: of how people would actually behave, what did you think of the companion's reactions to coming inside the TARDIS for the
0: first time? (sighs) Don't get me started. I'm not sure I I can actually get started on this. There just seems to be very little to say.
2: Much like the characters.
0: Yeah, arguably. I mean, I liked when Ryan just goes, get out. Like, it's all quite sort of monosyllabic with, with all the characters, really. And they just, it, Chibnall's, Chibnall's so determined not to do that bigger on the inside moment. He doesn't come up with something interesting to replace it. And
2: yet he does do the redecorated moment.
0: Oh uh, yeah, that was that was weird as well. <laughs> like, what's the point? The nods
1: to the past in this episode were really strange to me. That and the Venusian Aikido, they were just kind of dropped in And I appreciate that he already has the confidence to reference the past that I think Moffat didn't really get until... The fiftieth, the tenth Doctor says that line in the fiftieth.
2: I believe eleven does reference the Braveheart Tegan line in the Crimson Horror as well, but that's in the anniversary year, which ties into what you mean.
1: And also, there's the Jelly Babies moment, but I don't think uh, I don't think it's executed as elegantly as it would have been
0: before. You see, I kind of hated Venusian Aikido with the first watch, but I like it on the second watch. It's just at least it's not quite Venusian Aikido, but at least it's brief and subtle, unlike <laughs> most of the script.
2: Speaking of references to the past. What did we think of the Timeless Child?
0: The timeless Child. Abandoned and outcast.
2: Nate, is this any EU connections you can draw with what was going on there? Oh, there are so many EU connections. Did you have any instinctive or intuitive first thought as to what it might be from the
1: EU? It was just referring to the Doctor as a child. It seemed, you know, the Abandoned really matches with what we saw in the barn in Listen but um, everyone's taking it as an arc element, which is probably the best way it should be considered.
0: The fact that she seemed, they, they, they're alluding to the fact she's forgotten something, something is hidden from her that she doesn't know and that she will presumably find out later on. Like That's what seems to suggest there's something about the Doctor's past going on. Is
1: it a, something that a previous Doctor did? That would be interesting because I was trying to think it through and besides the whole time war, I think we've been relatively light on Doctors having to suffer the consequences of their previous incarnation's actions.
2: Yeah, I don't think, Chibnall doesn't strike me as the type to actually make it like something specifically from the past. Like, I feel like it would be a cloister war type of new law way in the past thing he's come up with. Like, I know some people were thinking, shock and horror, this is how Chibnall's dealing with 13's gender, is that he's talking about her. Uh, as a mother, like the, the child she must have had before Susan, you know, like the actual first generation child.
0: I would laugh my head off if the plot line is about the Doctor having had a child that we don't know about. I mean, you know, it, just, it would be awful and brilliant in so many ways. It would be phenomenal. It's like something from
1: a fan fortune. And uh, you know, it's about time we finish using all the fan fiction tropes on TV after Gallifrey was destroyed, at least. Yeah, I mean
0: Moffat played about with the idea that like Eleven might have gotten Amy pregnant, right? He didn't go there, <laughs> but it was certainly floating around in the subtext. So it's just Chibnall's duty to now to go all the way with that. The Doctor had a child. The premiere
2: did have her reference her family very directly as well. I really do think this might be an arc element.
0: Oh, one thing we heard very early for Series Eleven was that the watch for the watchword for this season is family. So, you know, anything any revelations we have about the Doctor's life will probably be family concern. I,
2: he, surely he's not doing anything with Susan, but that, that would feel insane <laughs> after the Capaldi era. Some, for some reason, never went there. <laughs> that if Chibnall does instead.
1: I think that was the one thing that Capaldi specifically wanted was for Susan to come back. It would be kind of like adding
0: insult to injury, wouldn't it, if Chibnall does that after Capaldi didn't get it.
2: Maybe that's like the one way, apart from Jenna doing it, that Briggs could get Capaldi on board for big finish, telling him he wants to...
0: Give him something with Carol Ann Ford. That'll be interesting, but you know, still big finish. So, you know, not that interesting.
1: I think it's more likely they tried to tempt him back with the Chumblies. <laughs> it's,
0: it's possible. Chumblies in a press release for normal people.
2: I wonder if Chibnall will ever get to his Mondasian Cyberman press release point.
0: That's a good question. Like, how many years would Chibnall have to do it before he got to that point, given where he's starting out?
2: Well, it was, uh, what, seven for Moffat to get there?
0: I mean, since we're talking about arcs, what do you guys think about the stenza being revealed as the series' big bad?
2: I love that it was literally 13 reading the script from the floor to how we got to that point.
0: And that encapsulates the big finishness of it perfectly, doesn't it? It's just her reading it out. Can you imagine actually thinking the stenza
2: of what to anchor a series around? Like... (laughs) How is this possible? Why is he thinking like this, Chibnall? It's
0: so weird, isn't it? Like, like it, the way the sensors set up in the first episode—they're not series big bad tier, right? He's literally, you know, it, um, Tim Shaw is such a joke of a villain. You cannot possibly conceive of him, this guy, and you know his civilization being, you know, this horrible, massive force throughout the galaxy. But that's what it is.
1: It's particularly interesting to me because I feel like when. New Who finally got around to not just using classic villains as the ARC series villain. It was the silence. Like, that was Moffat's big breaking into this area, and no one's really done it since, or he never did it again. And the fact that the Stenza is the next attempt that we're getting of introducing, like, an iconic new villain it's really disappointing.
2: The silence and the weeping angels, to maybe a lesser extent, oh no, to an equal extent, Of such a unique, you know, captivating, not just visuals, but concept as well. Like, this is really original stuff that lodges into your head. It's not just the predator, you know?
1: Yeah, it's, it's strong. Like, weeping angels, they move when you don't look at them. The stenza, they have teeth on their face and... They're really cold. Yeah, it's... I have... Some
0: amount of hope that something interesting could come of it, but. Yeah, the thing is, apart from the teeth thing, they are unutterably generic, aren't they?
2: Chibna wouldn't do this, but I'd like it if the stenza were like totally subverted towards, like, a narrative substitution towards the end where you thought the stenza were going to come be the big bads. Someone else comes and slaughters them all, and then, oh, this is the bigger fish, this is the really bigger bad. And then it's the Daleks or something.
0: Oh. That would actually be quite funny. I, I'd support that, but arguably maybe it's even something completely different. Like the Stenza turn out to be the good guys. Or the Stenza just have some. Or oh hell, maybe we just lean into the teeth aspect and the stenza turn out to be teeth obsessives. And the whole the whole series is about dental hygiene.
2: Well, I've heard a rumor that the next episode might concern a certain species looking to get Rosa Parks' teeth.
0: I mean that would almost certainly be a better story than what we're gonna get. On the subject of monsters, how did you guys feel about um, Doctor Who in the Fabric of Death in this episode? I
2: wouldn't have minded some for myself while I was watching it.
0: See, throughout my rewatch of the episode, I, I just started noticing the bits that I didn't miss on I, that I didn't see on the first watch, which is where they show you the rags lying about in the desert while they're walking through it on the way, and it's just so amazingly unthreatening. You get these music cues. Look, it's it's a rag. It's a fabric. I
2: think the most interesting post in the threads about the rags was from the Uncoming storm I'll read it out verbatim because I think it's it's quite a good take he says <clears throat> I'm not gonna try and do his accent talking rags are actually a nice idea an intelligent creature that exists in the form of rags created by scientists as a weapon and they survived in this terrible post apocalyptic world somehow very terry, very Terry nation in Stanislav Lem it's not the best but it has potential the question is why would you waste them why would you spend time on the sniper bots and all the pew pew shit. There are a couple of ideas like post-apocalyptic creatures in bizarre forms, the Space Rally scientists forced to make weapons for their overlords, but they're mostly done away in one line of exposition, literally one line of exposition, and then we get tedious boat scenes and sniper bot shoot ads instead of trying to do anything with these rags that Storm says have some potential. What do you guys think about
0: that? Mm, I mean, regarding the potential of the rags, I feel like Storm doesn't kind of address what could be done with the rags. On my rewatch, I thought maybe they could be like analogous to bandages somehow because 13 says that they're clearing out the wounded and maybe they're, maybe they're, they're a twisted kind of bandage or something like that. At least something going on with the rag imagery, but it's not really there. We just get some, you know, dinner and bondage where they sort of start tying up the characters and that's about it. I think you could do something visceral. Mummification, that could work. You know, the idea of the bandages wrapping around you and kind of like constricting you. There's something that could, could have been done there.
2: Could have been the remnants instead of, um, yeah, just the, the rags fighting around in midair.
0: I, and also the fact that the, the fabric of death can be beaten with a knife, you know. I mean, of course, only idiots carry knives, but
1: still. Only idiots carry knives. What a, what a comeuppance for the doctor to be confronted with something that she tries to sonic away to no effect and then Angstrom whips out a knife. I thought that was, they could have done more with that. I'm glad they didn't, but they could have. Speaking
2: of Angstrom kind of one-upping the Doctor, am I crazy for thinking that actress, hmm, how to put this? Susan Lynch. Yeah, Susan Lynch had a lot of charisma and interesting line delivery and was kind of magnetic in a way that, I mean, this could be down to the writing because it's always more fun to be a villain or a side character rather than the main character who by design has to be a little more bland. Although Doctor Who normally subverts that by having the companions to fill that. Anyway, do you think she would have been a better 13,
0: Susan Lynch? It's quite possible.
1: I think that if she had been cast as 13, the quality of the writing would have been the same for her as for Jodie. Um, I think Jodie is doing a great job. She really sold that... Reading from the floor scene, that was just so inherently Doctorish to me. But I'm really looking forward to seeing scripts that aren't written by Chibnall. I want to. This might be a case where the definitive take on the Doctor is written by someone other than the showrunner, which I think is unprecedented. Yeah, I'm
2: trying to think. Uh, I guess for eight, the definitive takes came from either uh, who would it have been in the books. Orman and Blum?
0: Yes, exactly. Kate Orman, definitely, with Vampire Science, right after the horrific that Eight dogs. Some would argue that the definitive take on Eleven came from Gareth Roberts in The Lodger, because they copy that a lot for Matt Smith after that point.
2: I would, yeah, I would kind of agree with that, honestly. I think The Lodger is not quite given its due as possibly the strongest script in that series. It's insane how well put together that is and how much a perfect vehicle it is for Matt specifically, who's kind of riffing off Tennant more than we see now early in the series. When we have series six and seven and his later characterization to go on, we kind of view him in that lens, but you watch some of those early episodes and he's a lot more Tennant-y than I like.
1: Well, The Lodger was originally a David Tennant story. So
0: that's a very good point. It was a comic for Tenn, yeah. But you know, Rob to his credit, Roberts did change it up a lot. And I think, you know, he gave that a lot of eleven specific attributes like the football, for example. That's it was uniquely a Matt Smith thing.
2: Something that frustrates me with how much Moffat reused or rehired Roberts was that he essentially got him to do the Lodger three times with the Lodger closing time and the caretaker when Roberts does have more range than just like the kooky Doctor in a relatable environment in episodes.
0: Although one wonders what Gareth Roberts might have done if he was <laughs> unleashed towards the first <laughs> Territory. To be fair, I think The Caretaker is an interesting structural advancement from the previous two, just in terms of being more of a kind of a, a sort of a farce with lots of more things going on at once. Although we are slightly getting off track here.
2: Yeah, let's not even touch the politics of that episode, what it says for the soldiers, and whether the two different writers towards it contributed to much of the tension there.
1: That really would be an interesting discussion to have. I never thought about, yeah, whatever, that's for another.
2: (laughs) Speaking of uh, things that aren't the Series 11 we're getting, someone posted this earlier today. Uh, It was a quote of Capaldi's from the hiatus year, 2016, and I think it's really interesting to consider now. It was Capaldi talking to BBC Radio Scotland saying, I haven't made my mind up. I've been asked to stay on, which is lovely. And I think Chris Chibnall's fantastic and a wonderful choice. To be perfectly honest, it's so far away in the future. You know, Doctor Who was a very difficult thing to say goodbye to. And I don't want to make that decision right now. They've asked me to stay on. So when I am forced to make that decision, I will make it.
0: That's so fascinating to me that they asked him because it seems so much more sensible from a marketing strategic standpoint to get rid of him because his error proved toxic for the ratings, so to speak, so interesting that they wanted to keep him on.
2: I normally try to read between the lines and the BBC stuff, but honestly, from what him and Chibnall say, I kind of believe that Chibnall was totally open to keeping him on and then Presumably doing his female doctor after a series or two
1: or whatever of Capaldi on the one hand I'm really glad that's not what happened because I think that he had three phenomenal seasons but at the same time I'm kind of interested to see what
0: Chibnall would have done with a doctor that wasn't his define to be honest i worry that it would have been even less than what he's doing with the doctor that is his to define i
2: think new who absolutely needs a doctor spanning showrunners, though we've had a showrunner spanning doctors two times but i really want to see two different takes on the same
0: actor in the same character well depending on when chibnall leaves we might get that and we might not jody
2: seems more positive towards the show than even Tennant did in his first year in terms of how not tired she is so Who knows, in three years,
0: possibly. There is always time, there's always time. What do you guys feel about um, the new TARDIS? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Can I take that as your answer?
1: I like it, I like the look, I like the crystals. I'm open to it. Um, If the walls really do move when it dematerializes, that would be really neat. But um, yeah, it's something.
2: I like the idea of the wall patterns being from when you look up from the ground in a certain type of forest, the negative space between the trees being like this weird cell structure. Like that's cool and very Doctor who to base part of the TARDIS on. But there's a bath plug on the console that's not connected to anything. There's barely anything on the console at all. There's a little crystal TARDIS there for some reason. There are still enormous screws in the pillars that make it look unfinished. The lighting is... the light. Like, It looks like a proper mess
0: to me. I find it so hard to get a handle on what's actually going on in the console to actually see it. Just because the way it's lit and designed, it seems to want to distract you from what's actually there. Like there's no, like there's no, there aren't any coherent eye lines or sight lines in that console room especially with those pillars getting in the way every time you try to look at it.
2: Yeah, the actual spatial geography of it makes me feel pretty sorry for the directors, especially in comparison
1: to the expansive 360 TARDIS we had last time. It really does. And I think part of that was, well, it wasn't helped by the zoom-in directing style that we already talked about. Um, And I think that's part of the reason why it didn't feel so cohesive. But my hope for the Crystal TARDIS, by the way, is that it's connected to the chameleon circuit somehow, and I would love it if Chibnall changed the shape of the TARDIS. That's something that's completely unfeasible for the BBC, but if it were to just change for one episode, I don't know, that'd be nice.
2: If they're taking so many cues from Big Finish, they should try doing an arc with the different colored TARDIS. I love that arc,
0: I really do. Let's get a pink TARDIS, you know? Let's just make it real, make it happen. They did mention the green police box. Right. Yeah, that one's real, isn't it? See, that's that's sort of. I mean, it's, it's, that's a nice detail, but Yaz saying that line when she says, "Oh, the one in town's green," this doesn't make any sense. It's it's still a nothing line, despite having an actual real detail of geography in there.
2: I can't help but love it though because it's so not Netflix. It's so not ketchup. Like, it's literally exclusionary to me, to Americans, to everyone that's not a Brit you know, in Sheffield, which I love. I love that Chibnall's still got a little elitism about
0: that. And Yeah, I'm not sure how elitist that actually is. Like, does he, does he actually expect the audience to know or care about the Sheffield police box? Or is he just putting in a detail that he thinks will demonstrate that these characters are relatable and human and really live in our world?
1: Speaking of strange lines, what were your thoughts on... Well, I thought it was strange. The section toward the start where the doctor explains why they can all understand English. That was
2: an issue to me because the last, I think Andrew Ehlin said this as well on Twitter, the last episode (laughs) (laughs) went to the same well of implants. Like has Jimno lost his imagination this quickly that we're using the same like low stakes world building stuff for different reasons. Like it felt weird, it felt almost intentional. Not that I think it was, and how repetitive it was.
0: There is one small possible advantage of the whole translation implant stuff, which is that it allows t- to draw attention to the fact that we still need the TARDIS. Because the 13 says, if I had my TARDIS, you wouldn't need this stupidity. And the whole episode is about trying to get back, to, well, it's in some sense about trying to get back to the TARDIS, so I'm not saying it's good, but there is maybe a a small justification for it. Yeah,
1: that makes sense. It seemed realistic. It was really trying to give some attention to detail, which kind of made it hurt all the more when it wasn't realistic. It's
2: not even necessarily in a bad way, but I think that is really specifically a cape shit thing. Like, this all started with Batman Begins in 2005, when it went to all that work grounding every single fantastical element of Batman, like why he would put a bat on his chest, why he could fight like a ninja, trying to ground in some real science. And then, you know, Nolan's work there, it's like blockbusters now are still feeding off what he did there, that audience has responded to so much. And certainly all the cape shit. Jim was watching, uh, like The Flash and whatnot, do the same thing of trying to ground every little thing. So an audience isn't pushed into too imaginative or fantastical a space. I think it really keys into that, which I don't really like because I like the weird unexplained stuff in Doctor Who, but I think it is a stylistic move now that I think on
0: it. Kind of on that note, like, Angstrom and Epso, okay, we we assume that we haven't necessarily gone into the far future or anything, but they look completely human, despite the fact that they have this bit where they're like, what's a human? I'm not human, we're not like you. And like, there's there seems like to be an opportunity to come up with an alien species there that's just not taken. Like, everything just looks, they just look like steampunkers or whatever the hell.
2: I just took that as a, a grace reference, you know, Rassilon's genetic, you know, empiricism.
1: Yeah, yeah, whatever. But, you know, I think what made Epso alien was that he was wearing earrings. I think that was Chibnall's commentary. Um, yeah, I wasn't convinced by that. I feel like Moffat, at least, Gave us the decency of letting us assume that episodes are set in the future. Like, I don't think there's anything in into the Dalek that really says that it's set in the future, but we can assume that it is. And this just felt jarring.
0: I mean, there is like we I don't I don't think we can assume that this the ghost monument is set in the future because we've transported to this place using the stenza technology, and there's nothing to suggest that the stenza are time travelers. So I think we can't we kind of have to assume they've just space opt. But
2: Minutes passed from the end of the first episode,
1: so it is the future. True. That's a genius point right there.
0: How do you guys feel about the the characters, just as as, as they are? Like, I noticed we get bits where, where Ryan says, ooh, uh, don't um, always trust the wisdom of Graham. <laughs> and, and that things like that feel very forced in, kind of crammed in. Nothing about it, it was really coming alive.
2: I think the best response to that is just noting that Graham
1: and Yaz have still not talked.
0: Such an interesting detail, isn't it? Why is Yaz there?
1: For the dads. Her character needs so much help. I'm happy that we'll have a few Yaz-centric episodes coming up, it seems. But, I mean, what scenes did she really have? She talked to Ryan briefly. She talked to Angstrom a little bit.
2: You know, what occurs to me now is that the first three episodes we know are mostly Ryan-Graham, mostly Ryan-centric of the Companions. And episode four is going to be set back in Sheffield and modern day again. Why didn't Chibnall just not make Yaz a companion until episode four, if he was only going to be working with Ryan and Graham for the first three episodes?
0: It's interesting just how t- how far Chibnall goes to not give Yaz anything character interesting. Like there's that moment where Thirteen is looking down at the flesh-eating microbes in the water and Yaz is there next to her. And Thirteen says, oh, something, 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 Yaz. And Yaz just doesn't say anything. Yaz is there for no reason, she's just there. She just cannot be given dialogue that might flesh out who she is as a person.
2: Speaking of dialogue fleshing out things, I want to note a few users were commenting to this effect. We talked about earlier the marketing log lines for the episode being like, and just who are Angstrom and Epso. And then in the episode itself, all the characters, definitely 13, also spoke in a lot of questions like about the plot, like literally, doing exposition for the plot through manner of questions in their dialogue. What would earlier episodes of Doctor Who be like if characters had talked in this way and the marketing had been in this way? One user said, For Smith and Jones, but just who are the Judoon? And what are they doing here? And why are they here? Why take a hospital to the moon? What is the significance of Mrs. Finnegan's straw? And another user referencing a Pertwee episode said, what the devil is going on with that asteroid? Just what could it be? What is this glowing shape we retrieved from the crash site? A power cell perhaps? And what on earth is recurring in that toy factory? Could it be related to the asteroid? Do you agree that The way this era is being set up in the marketing and the characters' actual dialogue is really weird and
0: questiony when put like that. That was consistent with episode one as well. They were doing that, but why this and why that? Why this and why that? They were doing that, and they've done that in both episodes so far. I think it must be, if not deliberate, then at least you know, a, a, a quirk of the style. And
1: thank God we have three companions to split it between, because if it was only one, it would be insufferable. That is bizarre.
0: Do you remember that bit where, do you that bit where all three companions was like, I'm confused, I'm super confused, I'm very confused. It's like, that seems like the only reason to have three companions, just to do this, just like this mechanical cascading of words.
2: They talk like it's a video game or something where only one character can be sequenced at once. Like 13 will say something, Graham will react, Ryan will react, Yaz will react. None of them will talk over each other and the companions won't react to what each other is saying. It's like they're the NPCs, 13 is the character. None of it can mesh together. Do you know
0: what I mean? Might they be NPCs in every sense of the word? <laughs> I do feel Chibnall has not quite grasped the um, the techniques of writing three companions at all. Do the techniques even exist? <laughs>
2: yeah, I'm thinking of Nyssa in 5 and. Uh, if it wasn't her getting dropped out, it was one of the up- It always gets me in kind how Nissa is just completely retired <laughs> for that episode. Like classic. Maybe one zero I did a little better with Vicky. Not so much Susan. But yeah, generally Three Companions has not worked well on the television. Are there any examples of Three Companions actually working in any form in the EU?
1: There are briefly... Oh, Bernice Summerfield, Chris Quedge, and Roz Forrester all travel with the 7th Doctor for a few novels before Benny leaves and those are fine but it's definitely not a dynamic that people seek out i think the eighth doctor also has a third companion for a little while with fitz and uh, angie but it's it's not something that ever stays for long because it's just hard to write
2: it's interesting these are in novels too i'm trying to think of audios and we get two companions all the time like charlie and kira's or Liv and helen or Aramund Perry, but I can't think of three offhand.
0: In terms of audios doing Three Companions, I'm reminded of the the Fifth Doctor box set that uh, attempts to do five Nissa, Tegan and Adric. And the way it approached that, we got um, Psychodrome, which was a nice story which actually kind of made it work because it gave each of the characters a psychological kind of through line and a way of addressing their character. But it had to do that in a very formalistic way by splitting up the characters and the world around the character psychologies. It's a bit of a god complex thing. And you feel like if you don't do something like that, it becomes very difficult to juggle three companions in a, in a sort of linear kind of short episode structure.
2: This doesn't have good tidings for when we have three guests on the next podcast.
0: <laughs> but, um... <laughs> oh, boy. I feel like if Chibnall was outright kind of retiring one companion for each episode, I'd respect what he's doing a little bit more, (laughs) like at least you're being honest.
2: Nate, do you know that Davison line about why he only had three companions?
1: He was concerned that the BBC only gave him so many companions because they were afraid that he wouldn't be able to pull off the performance otherwise. And I don't think Jodie needs that. Davison did.
0: And arguably, the companions aren't really helping at all. Like, even performance-wise, right? If they were assigned to, like, help, you know, carry Jodie's performance, they're not doing it. Because, like, Bradley Walsh, for example, he gives me an impression that he's a bit bored at times. Like, he doesn't seem like he's really enjoying it.
2: I don't understand what they cast with someone so funny and charismatic to play someone so dour had one note. Unless it really was just a marketing move.
0: The bit where he says, oh, you're still not calling me grandpa? Just... I don't get it. That, that reminded me of the dyspraxia moment in episode one as well. He's just, he has these bits where, oh, look at the conflict, but not actually thinking about it doesn't make sense.
2: Like, he's not, like, before offering Ryan emotional support, he's just feeling entitled to be, like, called that by. It's really off. I assume it's intentional, but it's, it doesn't feel good.
1: I think there's really, I think Chibnall is building up to something. Uh, last episode, I know you said that Um, Jodie should have understood everything about the stenza from when she was looking at the information files.
2: I didn't want Thirteen to learn everything about the stenza from the pod and then relay it at him. I just wanted her to extrapolate some information from the pod so Tim Shaw wasn't reduced to just monologuing about how villainous he was on the roof. But yeah, I know you were saying earlier, Nate, about how that wouldn't have worked so much with the presumably arc moment in the second episode of 13 being surprised about the stanza floor script reveal. So that floated idea about the premiere, if that had been there, then- And then
1: the plot of this episode, the little hook to the arc would have been absent. So I think in the finale, I think that'll be when it's really time to look back and assess all these little dangling, incomprehensible points.
2: To phrase it another way, would you say that something is coming?
0: Yeah, yeah, sure. I'll give you. I, I dread to think having to go through all the rest of the episodes and having to wait until episode ten for any of it to get resolved or you know work in any way. Because please, you know, I just, I just really want things to start picking up on the way there. I don't have to go all the way to the finale. There's a
2: structural point about the episode we haven't touched on yet that a post I really, really like did, did. So I want to skim through that really quickly to hear your takes. So this person said. The plot in the episode is one long narrative following traveling characters together after a very brief split at the beginning. The main dilemma is will the Doctor and her companions get to the TARDIS in time? We also have a story about Epso and Angstrom competing in a race, also to the TARDIS, though not for the same reason. Every character's motivation homogenizes into one thing, reaching the TARDIS. There's no conflict there, every character has the same goal. The only conflict is between Angstrom and Epso, who both want to reach the TARDIS. And then the fact of their winnings in the end is resolved off screen in much the same way as 13 Using the Sonic to Save the Day in the premiere was also solved off screen. Do you think there's much of a point to this episode being kind of shallow and that every character had the same goal and weren't conflicting in it? And then what little conflict there was being resolved off screen for the second episode in a row?
0: I feel like you could make something interesting out of Angstrom and Episode's conflict. Like that, that could have that could have carried it, but it just simply, it, it peters out like you said. It's like Chibnall's scared to actually write the bit where the good thing happens and just, oh look, something's happened.
1: I thought that was a strange inconsistency because if that is the conflict, there should have been way more focus on it than there was. Even when, I think this is a really little thing, but when 13 ignites Epso's cigar, it flickers between the faces of Ryan and Graham in particular reacting to the Inferno, but I don't think we see Yaz and I don't think we see Epso. That was my question. What's his reaction to his cigar getting blown
2: If we're pointing out these kind of flaws, I want to call it as something else. I think Andrew Erlard said on Twitter, and that this is an episode about a race, but when do we really see Epso and Angstrom actually racing? Like this isn't very visually sold or visually told and it doesn't really feel like a race at all. Would you agree?
0: Yeah, there's more than one point where Angstrom and Epso kind of split up, and one of them says, oh, you're gonna lose, Angstrom, and she says, oh, no, not in your life, Epzo, and then we just don't see them. (laughs) So it's like, yeah, there's no, there's very basic things, like, you know, what Nate said as well about showing Epso's reaction to the cigar, it's just basic, like, points of storytelling that are failed here, and it's really strange.
2: Here's something else. Why does this episode exist? What does this episode actually do?
0: Well, it introduces the concept of a generic, vapid romp, doesn't it? Like, it's quite amazing. If they
2: got the TARDIS at the end of episode one, what would have changed? What character beat happened here that was necessary? What reveal was here that was necessary? Was there any plot here that was necessary?
0: The Timeless Child, obviously. We did find out that Thirteen occasionally just gives up all hope for no apparent reason and needs to be cheered up by human pets. That was
1: so strange. I don't think we've ever had a moment like that with another Doctor where they're just so eager to be depressed.
0: It was so weird narratively because we know they're waiting for the TARDIS to appear, and yet as soon as the tent goes, she's like, Oh my God, we failed, we're going to die.
2: It was incoherent, I felt like I was reading the scene wrong because we knew from the information in the episode that TARDIS phased in and out, 13 would know that better than anyone. Why was she suddenly going mad over it not facing in quite yet when she knew it was going to soon.
0: It's like Chibnall wanted to give the Doctor some interesting emotional material but didn't have a decent justification for it. Just like earlier on in the episode, Chibnall wants to introduce the fact that Doctor's a pacifist and doesn't like guns, but he doesn't have a good justification for it, so we get this whole thing about don't shoot robots, it's the same thing. He wants to hit these beats, but he can't contrive good reasons for hitting them, but does it anyway.
2: I think, interestingly enough, this really does key into the big quote where Chibnall says, I think you tell great stories with great actors and you tell stories that feel resonant to people's lives. I mean, Doctor Who is the single greatest idea anybody's ever had in the history of television. So just make The Flash, really, and make
0: it to the best of your ability. Just make it, really. Just make it. We just watch it, really. Don't think about it, just fucking watch it. Not for
1: much longer. We can only hope. By the way, I feel like this is a good time for me to mention that I never really got back to you, Neo on who the Timeless Child obviously is. I think that it is specifically from the first Doctor short trip, The Little Drummer Boy, where we find a humanoid TARDIS who's a little boy. And I always thought that was something that was such a radical idea that was never followed up on. Just a humanoid TARDIS in big finish of all places. Yeah, so that's what I'm that's what I'm shooting for here. Obviously, the audio-like scripts, well, the
0: negotiation with Briggs. Is that one with Sarah Kingdom, or am I mixing it up? Yeah, on?
1: Sarah Kingdom, Steven
0: Taylor's in it too. So it's set during Dalek's Master Plan, right? Yeah.
1: It's funny you say that
2: because this is the week we had a series 11 writer explicitly say he read a 10th Doctor new series adventure to make sure he wasn't tripping over it. So if any time is there to really be integrating with the EU, it's Series
0: 11. I love that. Avina Patel will save Series 11 if I have anything to say about it. Yeah, to actually have read the book and not
2: just TARDIS wikia it up, it's pretty incredible. Oh, Nate, what do you think about how Titus TARDIS wikia has had the redesign and BBC America is specifically mid-working with them and looking into it and whatnot? I can't
1: believe someone from BBC America is looking at it seriously. Looking at their
2: TARDIS wikia? Yeah, its it's crazy but to move from a note of presence to absence. I'm gonna read this out since Morph is not here and we're leaning towards the end now. And I think it was a fascinating point about the TARDIS and I really am interested in both of your takes on it. So I'm gonna read out what Morph said in a thread to not many replies. Phasing in and out of materialization, the TARDIS's only relatively dimensionally stable matter was her exterior. In the time it took for the Doctor to find her again, she was given adequate time to reshape the police box into something cleaner and more suitable once it had been almost completely destroyed at the end of Twice Upon a Time. But the interior couldn't stabilize long enough for a full redesign. All it could do in attempt to heal itself was reboot. So the current interior is mostly the TARDIS's natural state as an organism hence the roundels being spread out and untouching like cells, and the mechanical walls closer to the doors uh, being in a displayed machinery. It hasn't fully integrated its dimensions into the full body of the police box. The TARDIS didn't have the chance to fully form and redecorate, but she did the best she could with what stable time she had. The TARDIS exists in all time at once She knew 13 would come with a crystal screwdriver, so she chose to retroactively design herself with that form for added familiarity, for comfort for the Doctor's new self. Other than the colour scheme and crystals, the interior is a natural, undecorated Type 40. This is all obviously his take, not like a proven thing. This is his ideas. A message can be read from this 13, although she's not explicitly showing it, Chibnall may not even be intentionally applying it. I's scared in her new body still learning herself. I haven't bought woman's clothes in a long time. Come to daddy I mean mummy. The TARDIS like the doctor is bearing itself to her counterpart It's a display of the intimacy and bond as two parts of one mind. It's redesigned itself on the outside fresh again But on the inside it's its true self the miniature spinning police model is a nod to this It's the TARDIS showing the doctor that yes It's intentional, I see you, so it's only fair you see me. For what I am now, and what I've always, has been and always will be, it excuses the shittiness of the design, at least. T-Morph. What do you think of that take?
0: Well, if if we're interpreting a shit set as the TARDIS exposing its inner self, its bare kind of workings to the Doctor, it could also be interpreted as Doctor Who exposing its inner shittiness to us, the viewers. So there's something to be said for that. I think it's nice. It's romantic. I certainly like the idea that
1: when the doctor pointed the screwdriver at the TARDIS and said stabilize, that somehow retroactively caused it to choose the crystal design. It almost makes me feel better about the set. But I'd be really curious to hear what he thinks the biscuit dispenser is for.
2: As per good old BBC controller Piers Wenger, God is the duffiness and idiosyncrasy of her predecessors.
0: Here is the TARDIS custard cream dispenser. The custard cream dispenser, thats that, feel, that almost feels like one of those things that's just left over from another era and it's just floated in. It, see, it sits so weirdly among all the other things. But then we've got the hourglass as well, haven't we? You've got things that seem like they belong on Matt Smith's first console, but they're on this one, even though it doesn't share any of the same design philosophies. How do you feel about the hourglass? It actually turns an hourglass in the TARDIS to send it off on its way.
2: I dislike it for a lot of reasons I dislike Smith's first TARDIS. It feels try-hard and intentionally quirky in a way I don't really feel with other TARDISes.
1: Yeah, I didn't get this with Capaldi's TARDIS at all, but these little doodads, I mean, do they serve a purpose? Do you think that flipping the hourglass is really what launches it into dematerialization? No.
0: What's so weird about the hourglass is that it doesn't represent a model of time that is compatible with the TARDIS, right? You know, the TARDIS goes across all over space and time. Why doesn't hourglass that linearly goes from full to empty you know, match aesthetically with this at all?
2: Maybe it's, we're misreading it, and it's actually how long it takes the custard cream dispenser to reload.
0: <laughs> Where's the reload? Where's the reload? I mean, custard creams, again, like, when when did 13 give off the idea that she was a biscuit person?
2: Well, that was all the set designer asking Jodie in real life.
0: And again, like I said, like, why couldn't Arwa Wynne-Jones just give Jodie Whittaker a custard cream in real life rather than forcing it into the
1: <laughs> That's a good question.
2: I wish she could have somehow, it would have been difficult to organise, but not revealed it to her beforehand and somehow had her on-screen reaction be a Jodie Whittaker's actual first true reaction to that. Piece of the TARDIS being there.
0: I mean, it would have been interesting if we could see, you know, the first time the actor actually goes into the set and that's the doctor's reaction, although that might not always go to plan.
2: This makes me miss the pilot so much when Lawrence Goff had that whole huge setup with how the camera would go in from uh, the doctor's room in the university on that big wire as the lights came in. Or the big shot we had in uh, Remember the Bells of St. John, that big digital sequence of how the TARDIS went inside like all in one swooping motion in the unbroken take when Clara went inside it and it all swirled around and it had such a huge sense of scale. Like these are such memorable TARDIS reveal moments. And I think in this episode, it's like I was forgetting the scene as it was going on.
0: Another useful point of comparison there is um, 11th hour's TARDIS reveal, right? We get the money shot of the, the, big, the big room, the console. The light is focused on the console, that the focal points we can see what we're meant to be seeing. Right In uh, the Ghost Monuments TARDIS reveal, as we get the shot following the Doctor into the TARDIS and we finally see the console, just as we're about to see it properly, we, we cut away. It's like the, the storyboarding is not actually attuned to helping us see the console and the things inside the room. The big shot of the whole room, the pillars are in the way and we can't see what the hell's going on anyway. It's like the set doesn't want us to see it. So um, how would you guys rate this episode? Out of 10. I thought about this last night because I knew this question would come up and...
1: Back then I decided a six, but since then I feel like it's fallen to a five or a four.
0: I know how you feel about uh, ratings falling. Like I've needed to retroactively revise my score for episode one from a a five or six to more like a four. And in which case I'd give this one maybe a 4.5 or a five. And I feel like I will regret this later as well.
2: I would give it a three, but speaking of ratings falling, I'm probably going to go off to watch some compulsive now. Pillar of hope, better written. Very cliché, better written. Pillar of hope, better written. Very cliché, better written. Pillar of hope, better written. Very cliché, better written. Pillar of hope, better written. Very cliché. And, but I still felt that that story was fairly um, boring, better written. Pillar of hope, better written. Very cliché.